Northwest Prime, bringing Seattle to the world and the world to Seattle. I'm your host, Lori Ness, a soldier on the front line of the mainstream. You can listen to this and other shows at northwestprime.com and be sure to stay with Seattle Wave Radio 24-7, 365 for more great music and interviews. We're starting a movement of kindness and we want you to join us. Let's get this show started. Today's just an absolutely great day for me because I have just one of the most brilliant minds, in my opinion, really on the face of the earth. Paul Levinson is an American author and professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. But he has accomplished more so far in his lifetime than most of us would ever do in 10 lifetimes. I could really do a mini-series with Professor Levinson on everything. I mean, he's worked with Wolfman Jack. He's been a singer-songwriter. He's published author. You can see him almost any day of the week on, on cable TV, on network TV. There's so many things for us to talk to him about, and we are. We're literally going to get this show started. So thank you, Professor Levinson, for coming on. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's, it's, it's just remarkable how much that you've been able to accomplish in, in your life. Were you always an inquisitive child? Yeah, I was a real terror as a child. I always had the idea, uh, ever since I can remember, that if I really enjoy something uh, as a consumer, you know, as a reader, as a viewer, as a listener, that I can go out and do it and produce it. And I guess it's a good thing for the world that I never enjoyed nuclear physics. Otherwise, I probably would have built an atom bomb at some point. But I, I, I started reading science fiction when I was a kid, and it seemed a, a very natural thing for me to write my own science fiction. And I heard rock and roll on the radio. I mean, these were the golden days when I was a kid back in the late 1950s. Uh, you mentioned Wolfman Jack, but this was even before Wolfman Jack. I listened to Alan Freed. Uh, I lived in, in New York City, and Alan Freed was on WINS, Murray the K. And uh, it seemed a natural thing for me to not only listen, but to actually start making music. And, in fact, later on, in addition to uh, my album, Twice Upon a Rhyme, and a lot of other uh, records that I recorded, I actually work with both Murray the K and Wolfman Jack. So, you know, the world is filled with exciting possibilities. And, you know, you only get one ride on the merry-go-round, as far as I know. I mean, it would be great if there was reincarnation. I'll, I'll take that, too, if it comes along. But uh, as far as I know, it's just one ride. And you might as well avail yourself of all the, uh, the opportunities. And you can do some good in the world and have some fun while you're doing it. Well, I, I think that a lot of people might not associate academics and with pop culture uh, because, like you said, a lot, a lot of people in academics go into building that bomb or creating a, a cure for cancer or something like that. But it, it's so great when you can merge those two uh, as, as a fan of TV <laughs> and music like I am. 
Well, I guess in many ways we have Marshall McLuhan to thank for that. And anyone who has seen the movie Annie Hall, the Woody Allen movie, there's a great scene there where Woody Allen is standing online with his uh, girlfriend, and there's uh, actually a professor from Columbia University in front of him, you know, talking all kinds of nonsense about television. So Woody Allen turns to the camera and says, wouldn't it be good if we could really get an expert here who understands television? And he pulls Marshall McLuhan in from off screen into the uh, into the action but the reason that Woody Allen put Marshall McLuhan in that scene was because in the 1950s and 1960s really for the first time uh, people in the academic world serious scholars began writing about television and radio and motion pictures they realized back then that yeah it was a lot of fun but it was a very significant barometer uh, of our culture. And it was pretty much around that time that the first communication departments began to be set up in universities. Uh, at Fordham University, where I teach, the communications department, in fact, was set up in, in the early 1950s. In, in many cases, English departments would sort of split off into a, an English department and a communications department, and it's because of the rise of communication and media studies as a serious scholarly area that people like me could have their cake and eat it too. And I, could, I can walk into a classroom and indeed talk about Breaking Bad, talk about Almost uh, Human, uh, and then go into another class and uh, teach uh, in a writing workshop how to review uh, television, how to write science fiction stories, all of those things became possible in university life because of, of the rise of communications as a discipline. And we have Marshall McLuhan more than anyone else to thank for that. I actually wrote a book about McLuhan called Digital McLuhan, and it was published in 1999. And, and you know, people are still, you know, reading it and talking about it. Uh, 2011 was the 100th anniversary of McLuhan's birth, and there were conferences all over the world uh, that I and other people went to. So it, it, to some extent, this is a revolution that he uh, started. Well, and, and it's great that we all get to benefit from all of that because I, I would think that since really TV started being so common and being put in everybody's homes in the 50s, in the 60s more common, in the 70s, 80s, everybody, in fact, kids now, they wouldn't even know what it's like to, to not have a TV or have multiple TVs in, in the home, that you have a much wider audience now in your classroom that has just grown up as this just being the norm than it was maybe in the 50s and the 60s. That's right, and, and TV and radio have something going for them that even today with all the advances in the Internet, uh, TV and radio still have, and that's you just turn it on. Right, you don't have to think about anything. You don't have to put in a URL. Mm. Not that it's so hard to do that, and and that's in, indeed why they both became so important. But there's a lot that conventional TV and radio don't do. One of the main things that they don't do is they don't really allow for interactivity with their listeners and viewers. And one of the great things I think about the internet revolution is you watch a show on television, and so like in my case, I put up a blog post about it, and within a few minutes, people are coming commenting on it or they quote the blog post on some other board. In other words, the, the viewing audience has really radically changed. It's not just an audience 
of people who they can talk maybe to their friends about it the next day or they can talk to family members who happen to be with them when they're watching the television show. Instead, they can instantly talk to anyone, any place in the world about what they see on television. So it's not so much at all that new media have replaced traditional media. It's more the case that uh, these new media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, blogging, have actually drawn into them these older media. And it's really a cooperative relationship. And I talk all about that in another one of my nonfiction books called New New Media, which was first published in 2009, and then a new edition came out in, in 2013. It really is a revolution, like you were saying. From I remember as, as a little girl, I had to wait for the TV to start. Um, I, I think it came on at 6 or 7, they played the national anthem, and then the TV day would begin, and then it would go off at night. And we only had a couple channels to choose from. And then I remember as a teenager then cable, the invention of cable. And that just, I mean, we just really thought, oh, my gosh, you know, that not only did we not have just three channels, we had many, many, many channels. And now, like you were saying, with it going where it's going onto the Internet and, and, and we're seeing kind of a revolution with Netflix and, and the way that they're doing programming. Where do you kind of see this going? It's almost like we are living science fiction. Well, that's true. And the, the key point about all of this, whether it's Netflix or cable television and DVRs and on-demand, uh, the key point is that we, the consumer, we, the viewer, decide when we watch what we see on television. And when you were growing up and when I was growing up, it was completely different. Uh, we, we basically had to watch television on the network's agenda. They decided when to pr put on a show. And, in fact, in my day, it was so bad, and this was before even VCRs, back in the 50s and 60s. And in the 50s, when I was a kid, if you missed a television show, you were out of luck. There was just no way you could see it again. Or if there were two shows that were on at the same time on different networks, I actually used to have arguments with my you know, younger sister and sometimes my parents, because they weren't science fiction fans, about what shows we'd watch on television. And, of course, I was always right. I had the best taste. But you know, sometimes I had, a, I had a compromise. But now you don't have to do that anymore. It's not negotiation. You, you, know, you can set your uh, DVR to record you know, now as many as like nine or ten different channels you know at the same time and so what this has done is it's made television much more something that we watch when we want to rather than when the network says the show is on and as far as where this is going in the future i think we're already beginning to to see this you know one of the great things that steve jobs did among the many great things was when he first was putting together his ideas for the iphone he said you know we have to have youtube on this iPhone because you know what's better if you want to watch something on television then you you pull this little phone out of your pocket and you press a couple of buttons and you know there there's your streaming television so i think that we're seeing this develop even more for example, with Google Glass, these are literally glasses that you put on. They could be your prescription or just, you know, blank glass if you have 20-20 vision. And in a little corner there, you can see 
things that are on the web. And in your pocket, you have, like a, in effect, a, a smartphone, and you can control it by talking. And so where people are already walking down the street and say, hey, you know, I, I want to see what's going on on the news. Get me MSNBC. And, you know, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and that's indeed what, what they can do. Some people in the academic world are concerned about this. You know, they're concerned that somehow this is invading our privacy, that somehow the media are imposing what they want upon us. But I've never put much stock in those kinds of criticisms because I think that we human beings are still in control, and that's really the point. You know, we can shut our phones off, smartphones off now anytime we want. If, we, if we're talking about Google Glass, we can take the glasses off, put them in our pocket, put on a regular pair of glasses. No one is forcing us to do any of this. And I think what's really happening is we're seeing a dramatic increase in options that consumers have. And at the same time, and this is also a very important point, producers are now having much more access to the world at large. One of my favorite poems is uh, it's a poem that was written by Thomas Gray, I don't know, back in the 1400s, a long time ago, maybe more like the 1700s. But in any case, it's called Elegy in a Country Churchyard. And uh, the poem is about, you know, the people who are buried there in that churchyard. And one of the points that Thomas Gray makes in this poem is who knows how many mute Miltons are, are buried in this churchyard that no one will ever know about because they, they just weren't in the right place at the right time. And one of the things that this new ease in production is bringing us is the ability for people with all kinds of ideas, which otherwise might never have gotten out into the world, to now get them out into the world. The, the Kindle revolution helps this uh, as well. I'm a, I was a published author before Kindle, um, but I know many people got their first book published on Kindle, and that's an important development. And even for, for a published author like me, it's great that w you can put out new editions of older books in addition to new books. You don't need a publisher. You don't need anyone's approval. If you are an author, you can do it directly. And I think that's a very profoundly important development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, definitely. And, and I think we have taken Ed Garth Stein on here um, last year, and, and, and he was still really committed to the, the, the book, the, the, the hard book, and, and kind of anti-Kindle. Um, but, but I've talked to him since, and, and you know, kind of reluctantly now he's, he's coming that way, whereas I, not as a real big avid reader, because, of course, I was more of a television generation person, um, I loved the Kindle because if somebody was on TV, like yourself, and they were, and you were saying, I wrote this book, um, New New Media, I could, like, in, in five seconds, I could have it. I don't have to go down to the bookstore, write it on a piece of paper, try to remember the name. What was the name of that book? And therefore, never getting it. Now, I can pick up my iPad, and while you're still talking, I can have that in a matter of, of seconds. So for someone like me, um, it's, it's genius, <laughs> and I'm grateful for it. Uh, and I agree with you completely. I remember that. This was back in the 1980s that Isaac Asimov uh, came out with a new novel in his Foundation series, which I think is one of the best series in all of science fiction. And I remember it clearly. It was Sunday evening. 
And I, the first I found out about, of course, this was really before the Internet. It must have been like, you know, 10, 11 o'clock in the evening. And I'm reading uh, the, the, the Sunday Times book review section, and there's an ad for this new book. And I remember how frustrated I was because the, the, the bookstores were closed. It was, you know, 10 o'clock on Sunday evening. They were long closed. And I, I woke up early the next morning and drove over to the first bookstore I could find and bought a copy of the book. But as you are saying, now... If that were to happen, I would basically <laughs> download the Kindle and have it in 30 seconds and be reading it. And, and that's an mm -hmm. important step forward. It's a, it, it, what media evolution is about is the satisfaction of human needs. It's not that media impose what they do upon us. It's that media survive and thrive, are invented and succeed because they perform some important human function. Mm -hmm. Well, that really, you know, I wrote that down when you were talking about that, about the media. That uh, it was an age-old argument about the media kind of brainwashing us, uh, that we were limited to them, you know, feeding us what what we were going to think and see and hear. But I, I don't really feel like that it ever did that. I, I am I'm with you on that, where I think that people, you know, um, can appreciate what goes on, but but can then walk away and form their own uh, opinions about things throughout life. You know, I, I think it does have, you know, maybe a little cultural influence here or there, but at, at the fundamental root, I, I don't think that it, it does that horrible fear thing that they were always telling us that, you know, it was brainwashing us into being some type of drones for the government. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, a, that's good science fiction right there. But that's uh, not reality. <laughs> I, I, I would have a conversation with a publisher, and he um, said something which I've always remembered. I was talking to him about, well, what is it that's most responsible for selling books? You know, you're a publisher. He's a science fiction publisher. And I was amazed that he said, well, you know, if you add up all the ads that we take out, if you add up every rave book review, if you add up everything except one thing, all those things account for less than 7%. Apparently surveys were done of why people buy books. So what is the other 93%? Uh, he said, well, it's word of mouth by people that you have confidence in. And that's why, again, the, the media don't program us. We basically respond to what we want, and if, if we take direction from anyone or are influenced by anyone, it's because we respect you know th those people again they could be members of our family friends it could be people we know online and we've gotten to know them and we we value their recommendations so i think human beings are very much in the driver's seat absolutely well growing up uh, you were really at the epicenter of innovation in radio and tv being from from new york city you talked about alan freed and he was really a leader and you know really was thinking outside of the box for his generation at that time and then in my generation Wolfman jack um i, I remember you know it was a big deal for us to tune in and hear Wolfman Jack, as I'm sure it was for people with, with Alan Freed. And like you said, you, you respected their opinions because they were bringing you really great stuff. And that was back in the days, too, when DJs could make um, great musicians famous. It, it's harder to do that now because so much has been taken away from the actual 
DJ radio. Um, I, when I was in LA, they actually I, I was there kind of during that um, time when they the uh, independents were kind of bought up and we were given strict playlists and they locked the door and people just couldn't come in and hand us demos like, like they used to could do with Alan Freed and Wolfman Jack and and who had big influences on great music of for that generation and do miss um, because now we're kind of being you know forced like six songs a day or eight songs a day and we have to listen to those things and that does play into where the internet is has become something very good where it, it gives uh, opportunity to indie uh, musicians and authors actually to to be heard when maybe that they wouldn't been but that's what I do have to say about Alan Freed and the guys like Wolfman Jack. They, they were just amazing at finding talent back in the day. Absolutely. And I, I mentioned another disc jockey, Murray the K, who was known as uh, the Great. Fifth Beatle. Uh, and, you know, the way I got to know Wolfman Jack was through Murray the K. What, what happened was, you know, I'll never forget this. It was uh, July 4th, 1972. And um, M- Murray the K had been out of radio, at least in New York, for six or seven years. And uh, my girlfriend, who later became my wife, and is still my wife, we, we turned on the radio on, on July 4th, and here was Murray the K on a station. He had come back. And this was, you know, I was pretty young then, and uh, I had basically had a total of one article published in a newspaper called The Village Voice. But I sat down and I wrote an article about Murray the K uh, coming back to New York and how great it was to hear him on the radio, put it in the mail. Again, there were no computers. And much to my delight, The Village Voice published and the Archon paid me, which was also nice. But the day that the article was published, I get a call. Uh, I pick up the phone, and who is it? It's Murray the K. And he's saying, hey, you know, I, I read the article. I really appreciate what you say. How would you like to come work for me? And so oh that's my gosh. How, I was, and you can imagine how thrilled I was, so I said, yeah. And then Murray the K eventually left, went on to other things. But before Murray left, Wolfman Jack came by to NBC. He's the Wolfman. I mean, he was, you know, in, in great shape. And, you know, this was maybe a little after the Midnight Special television show. So he was, like, really at the height of his fame. Uh, and uh, Wolfman said to me, hey, you know, you've been doing good things with Murray. How would you like to work for me? And I said, yeah, I'd love it. And what I would do is I'd put together, like, special uh, segues and segments of uh, of songs, like, you know, ho- songs that had to do with Halloween, you know, songs that had to do with whatever particular theme, and, and Wolfman uh, Jack would play them. So, you know, it was a really wild, wide-open time, and uh, you're right, that time is gone as far as broadcast radio is concerned, but I think that, that the Internet has done a great uh, job as well. You know, people like Bernie Overly uh, and his mm-hmm. Rock On show, and, you know, th- there are others as well. You know, my album, Twice Upon a Rhyme, which came out in 1972, and probably sold a negative number of records. <laughs> you know, it's like we got more returns than we sent out. But I don't know how that happened. But, uh, you know, so basically for many years, the only poor souls who heard that album, in addition to me, were my wife and kids. You know, I, I had a cassette tape of it. We'd be driving up on some vacation. That's what we would listen to. You know, they, they liked it. But anyway, but then, like in 2002, a Japanese, uh, record magazine published a review of the album and I don't even know how they got the copy and they said it was a lost cult classic it was certainly lost you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I don't know what it's 
as a result of that, uh, one thing led to another, and uh, a, uh, a South Korean record company, Beatball Records, put out a CD of Twice Upon a Rhyme. A British company uh, remastered the vinyl, Whiplash Records. They put it out. It's been up on iTunes. And one of the original members of the group of people who recorded that music, a guy by the name of Don Frankel, who played organ and piano on the various cuts on Twice Upon a Rhyme, just a month ago went into the studio with Robbie Rist, who, uh, if the name sounds at all familiar to anyone, he played Cousin Oliver in the Brady Bunch. He's had a great career in uh, music mm-hmm. and movies. He, he played the bus driver in Sharknado. Anyway, Robbie and Don went into a studio and recorded a new version of the lead song from Twice Upon a Rhyme called Looking for Sunsets in the Early Morning. And um, and they call their group Sundial Symphony. And I, I put that out. I still have my own record label, Happy Sad Records. We put it up on iTunes and Amazon, and we're getting great response to that. So it's like here really is the key. And for you know, for all of your listeners, if you have an idea, whether it's an idea for a book, a story, music, the key point is getting it from your head into some kind of tangible form. And, and, you know, now it's never been easier. You know, you have an MP3, what could be easier, and you put it up somewhere, But if it's music. But, but once you get it from your head, once you allow it to make the leap from your brain into some kind of medium, then it could live forever because then it's not dependent on you anymore. And anything can happen. Lightning can strike and, you know, I, I, I get like email out of the clear blue sky about the Silk Code, you know, my 1999 novel is my first novel, which is, you know, now on Kindle. But, you know, I wrote it a long time ago, but it's still me, and people are still reading it for the first time now. And so th- that's the key, I would say, to anyone. Too many people, for some reason, either don't have the confidence or, you know, they, they, they just don't quite know how to get their work out there but if you can make that leap that work will be bouncing around for decades and maybe even longer yeah that's that's really good advice it's um getting it out of your brain and then just getting it on there that that's that's the biggest battle right is just doing it making it happen amazing Well, we have to talk about, on, on the 10th of December, you're the guest expert on Na- National Geographic's How to Survive the End of the World. And the zombie earth is, is the special that you're on. But you're all over the TV. You're, you are, I mean, pe- uh, people all over look to you for, uh, for your wisdom and, and your insight into things. But, but this is the, the next one that's coming up that, that I'm aware of. Yeah, well, actually, this is, it's, a, it's actually a series of six shows. Uh, How to Survive the End of the Earth is, uh, the End of the World is the title of the overall series. The first show is Zombie Earth, in which rabies goes wild and wipes out a lot of the population. The second show is called Hell on Earth, in which there are volcanic eruptions. And some of the subsequent shows will be about nanotech, you know, going crazy. There's a show, Frozen Earth, in which it gets not quite the opposite of global warming, global freezing. Uh, so you might ask, what am I doing on these shows? You know, what do I know about rabies? But w- what the producers wanted is, uh, in addition to having hard scientists talk about uh, these possibilities and scenarios, ha- have a social scientist be able to look at how the media will react 
for example, in, in the case of Zombie Earth, as the epidemic begins spreading, how much information do you give the public? On the one hand, you want people to know what's going on. On the other hand, you don't want to trigger a mass craze where people you know, stampede other people or burn down parts of cities. So a lot of this has been treated in science fiction, but what makes these shows very good, I think, is they are in part science fiction, but they're also serious speculation, and uh, they're good, frightening fun. Uh, last year, I was on a show called Evacuate Earth, which was done by the same producers, which dealt with uh, the possibility of uh, a comet or a meteorite hitting Earth, destroying Earth, but we find out about it enough in advance that we can get a ship off this planet. Uh, so that's a good show to watch as well. But uh, yes, you'll be able to see me. They have me like in a dark room. It almost looks like I'm in a bunker somewhere. Uh, you know, with my sinister <laughs> lighting. And here he is, Professor Levinson. While the world is falling apart, here are my words of wisdom. So good holidays, yours. Right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, right now zombies are really hot anyway, so I, I think a lot of people will probably tune into that. I mean, you can't get any hotter right now than, than zombies. In fact, I was just talking to Colin um, uh, Bloomstone, who's the leader of the zombies, and he was, we were talking about him coming up with that name. And he said, if I had known 40 years ago how popular zombies were going to be, he said, we just didn't have a name, and we've just picked zombies. But he said, it just turned out that now zombies are very popular, and they're having a, this kind of resurgence in, in their career, too. And, um, so zombies are, are really in right now. Absolutely. I'm glad they are. Well, no one told me about her. I love that song. Who wasted yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it's a classic. Great, great yeah, it is. And, and obviously with The Walking Dead and all those things, it's uh, now that's probably why this is the lead show in the, uh, in, in the series. So uh, I've seen some advanced clips. It's going to be a lot of fun. How do you continue to inspire yourself? You've had so many successes. And like I said, your accomplishments, you, you've accomplished more than most people do if they were if there was reincarnation and they were here ten times, wouldn't accomplish what you've just done in, in the short amount of time you've been here. How do you continue to inspire yourself and, and, and ratchet up? Two ways. One, life itself is inspiring. When I walk into a classroom and you know teach students, I find that inspiring. I get some of my best writing done right after classes. The other is the, the immersion in the popular culture. So you know you see a great show like The Walking Dead, uh, and if you're a writer, you can't help but think about writing your own stuff. So right now I'm finishing up a Kindle edition of a book published in 2002 called The Pixel Eye, the gist of which squirrels are outfitted with little chips in their head so that when they look at you, they transfer that information back to some central governmental or terrorist system. But, you know, when I see a show like Homeland, you know, uh, about terrorism, that actually stimulates me to want to write my own things about it. So it's... For me, my brain has always been set on whatever happens to me in the world, that's great material for whatever it is I'm writing. And whether it's eating in a restaurant or walking on the beach, you know, or going to see a movie with my wife or watching something on a computer screen by myself, it, it doesn't matter. All of that I find very, very stimulating. And so I bring that stuff in and it gets my demented brain going and producing other things. Mhm. Mm you know, it's 
it's it's hard if you're not wired like that to think like that. But, but when you are wired like that, like you said, it just it just comes naturally. And everybody has their thing, I guess, that they're that they're wired to. And 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 lucky for all of us because or the world would be a very boring place. That's right. I have twenty, a hundred, maybe five hundred times the number of projects in my head that I haven't even yet done that I've put out there. So. You know, for me, it's just a question of having the time. And, you know, 24 hours are not that much. You know, I do have to sleep right. a little bit. <laughs> you know, so. That's exactly, exactly. Is is where we came from, the Alan Freeds, the Murray Kays, the Wolfman Jacks, that era, is, is it still relevant to students today? No, I think most students today, unless, you know, they get it from their parents, have no idea about that era. It's relevant historically in that they're interested in how where we are today evolved from where we are then. But you have to have lived through the process uh, and the events in order to, I think, fully understand it. One of my favorite philosophers is John Dewey, and he has like two important principles. One, you have to do things in order to understand them. So you really can't get Twitter by just looking at it. You have to go on there and tweet. But, but the other thing is uh, there is nothing like direct experience in terms of leading people to understand. Even the greatest books, even you know, the most brand histories, even the most riveting science fiction is, is not the same as actually being there. So, I mean, I, I realize this every time people talk about John F. Kennedy. I mean, I remember what it was like when John F. Kennedy was president. I was just, you know, kid 16. And I remember the difference in the country, you know, what happened when he was assassinated. And, you know, you can read about it, but you can't really fully understand all the emotional impact if you didn't live through it. That is true. That is true. Um, I was born after Kennedy, and so when I hear people talk about their love for him, and it's I, I kind of get it, but I don't get it because, just like you said, because in that era and that time and what was forming that generation and everything that had come before and leading up to that, I didn't experience that. So the, the gravity, I guess, is not um, transferred through to, to me. Yeah, no, that's right. Now, I sort of realized that the first time even when I was a kid, and my parents loved Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, they used to talk about him all the time. He saved the country and all that stuff, got us out of the Great Depression, you know, beat the Nazis in World War II, all that stuff. And, you know, obviously I got it. I understood intellectually what they were talking about, but I, I never did, and to this day I don't really have any gut feeling for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But, but yeah, I mean, for John F. Kennedy, I, I just remember how exciting was I mean it's very interesting because he was in his 40s uh, and when he was elected I was like 13 so we had almost nothing in common but I I got that he was much younger than Eisenhower and just he just seemed like you know someone from my generation and uh, you know but but every every generation has this so I mean I think that uh, you know you know people now will probably have a similar feeling for Barack Obama, which, you know, 50, 60 years from now, someone who was not born, they'll get it intellectually, but they, they won't have the same, uh, you know, emotional sense of, of, of his presidency. 
See, that's why pop culture is just so fascinating to me because it's always evolving and, and everyone has a different experience and a different interpretation of, of that same experience. And I just can't really get enough of it. And I'm sure most people who think like me, um, there's a whole bunch of us, millions and millions and millions of us, thank goodness, um, they're going to want to hear more. What's the best way for people to follow you and stay up with you and, and um, you know, contact you? Oh, so here are a couple of possibilities. One, my Twitter account is at Paul Lev, P-A-U-L-L-E-V, at Paul Lev. Uh, my blog, which has all of my television reviews and blurbs about all my books, is very easy. It's paullevinson.net. So just make sure you have two L's in there, P-A-U-L-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N.net. Uh, and um, I have a YouTube channel with, with lots of stuff. I won't give you the URL of that, but you just go on YouTube, search for Paul Levinson. You'll find my channel. I have over 100 videos. You'll see me uh, having debates with Bill O'Reilly about various things, <laughs> uh, You know, clips of my music, uh, trailers for my science fiction novels, all kinds of interviews and, and stuff like that. Uh, Facebook is a little bit of a nuisance because, you know, they have a limit on the number of friends that you can have. Uh, but people can certainly follow me on Facebook. And if they want to do that, uh, I'm just facebook.com slash paul.levinson. And you, the, people can certainly message me there. And by the way, I answer everything. Anytime anybody writes to me, I always answer because I'm still thrilled when any, ever anybody wants to talk to me. You know, it's nice. <laughs> it's like, like a good perk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate the amount of time that you gave us today, and it's just absolutely fascinating. We really need to do this again, so I'm going to impose upon you again in 2014. You're going to hear from me. I'd really love to have you back on. Oh, absolutely. Anytime I'd love to. A series with us is a great idea. <laughs> De definitely, definitely. Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be working on. I'm going to be taking some time off here in the next couple of weeks for Christmas, and then I'm going to be on it for January. So I'm going to be putting some ideas together. So, and, that, and that's just how I am. Once I like you, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Come and get me. I, I love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Professor. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. It was absolutely for someone like me. Um, who, who loves pop culture and science fiction and radio and music. I mean, it's, I, I just can't find enough people like you to satisfy the appetite I have to talk about these things. So it's, it, it's a huge treat for me personally. Well, me too, and, and any time. And have a great holiday. Thank you. You too. Take care. I'll talk bye -bye. to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Paul Levinson, you know, he was just absolutely fun and amazing to talk to. He's an author, singer-songwriter, just really had a just a lifetime full of the most wonderful experiences and just kind of motivates you to, to, to try to just keep filling your life with, with experiences. We're talking about the zombies. I had Colin on not very long ago. They are nominated as, um, as a possibility to go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So we should be hearing about that in January to see, and I really hope they do. Time of the Season is one of the most classical songs in rock and roll history of all time. We're going to go out with that today. So thanks for listening. This is the Zombies time of the season. It's the time of the season When love runs high It's the time 